It took about seven months for scientists to figure out why some people who contract COVID-19 lose their sense of smell. Apparently, the virus that causes COVID will often attack the cells in the human body that support what I think is pronounced the olfactory sensory neurons. How was that, Justin? Okay. That, uh, that is the electrically excitable part of our nervous system that detects and transmits the sense of smell. I've known quite a few people who have contracted COVID, and thankfully most of them are doing fine, but they have almost all been robbed of the sense of smell. I find it remarkable that one of the primary symptoms of the virus is also a symbol of the way this pandemic has affected all of us. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. Even if you have been healthy since March, you have been unable to be regularly close enough in contact with other people, especially strangers, so as to be able to smell them. Your olfactory sensory neurons have been dormant for the better part of eight months. It's hard to smell people through a mask It's very hard to smell people when you're masked and six feet apart. It is impossible to smell people over Zoom. What happens when we cannot smell our neighbor? It's very easy to start to hate them. (laughs) Sounds dramatic. Let me explain. It's very easy when we're not in regular contact with people who are different from us to lose touch with that part of ourselves that can appreciate how complicated and often tragic people's lives can be. When we don't have to deal with how people smell, it's easy to remain comfortable in our own narratives. We don't have to consider how well our experience of the world matches anyone else's experience of the world. And that discrepancy, that distance, inflames resentment, and it cools charity. Here's how one writer put it. When we are never forced to grapple with the corporeal, that's right, corporeal, what a word, corporeal tragedies which afflict fellow humans, compassion wanes, sympathy fizzles, and division materializes. To smell another person is to almost be compelled to empathize with them. Our reading from Matthew's Gospel is the climax of Jesus' teaching on what will take place when he returns. Our glorious Lord will sit on his glorious throne and he will do laundry. He will sort out the peoples of the earth by one simple standard. Over uh, 150 years ago, I think in the novel Bleak House, Charles Dickens coined this term, telescopic philanthropy. Have you, has anyone heard of this? It's, it's not a compliment. It describes people who are eager to help the less fortunate, the hurting or the ill, 
but only from a distance, telescopic philanthropy. Well, whatever else is happening in this passage, here's one thing I know. Jesus will produce in his people the exact opposite. Jesus' people will be willing to roll up their sleeves and get up close and personal in our hurting world. His people will serve the least in close proximity to them. They will be close enough to smell them. So I want to work through this text this morning, and my hope is to work through it in such a way that we would hear three things, that we would hear a warning, a description, and finally an invitation. First, a warning. It does not take a lot of creative or particularly demanding Bible study to determine the main point of this passage. God deeply cares about how we treat our neighbor, and God especially cares about how we treat those who find themselves in hardship or find themselves on the margins for whatever reason. The gospel that is given to us in the scriptures is is a social gospel, and the faith that justifies us before God is faith as action. It's faith that works. The strong emphasis on, on practice, on action in our passage, however, does not mean that there are not claims being made that are very important, I would suggest, for us to pause and consider. And the first claim relates to accountability. Accountability. This text tells me and this text tells you that we are accountable. We are free to leave this place, to turn off our computer and do whatever we want with the rest of our day, whatever we want with the rest of our lives. But at the end, we will give an account to the Lord who gave us our life. And this truth is explored in lots of places in scripture. I wanna focus on the end of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14. Paul makes an extended appeal to his readers He says to them, in essence, stop judging each other about how you practice your faith. And he bases that appeal on the conviction that Jesus is alive and that he is the judge of the living and the dead, not us. And that we will, in fact, have to reckon with the course of our life before him. Here's what he says. It's Romans 14, 12. Each one of us will give an account of themselves to God. So there's a warning here about accountability. There's also a warning about judgment. All peoples from every nation will be gathered before our king, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Evaluation is inevitable, and there will be no exceptions or favoritism or excuses. Again, to quote St. Paul, this time from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Accountability, judgment, and then finally, separation. There are consequences for the things that we've done in our bodies, good or evil. There are lots of phrases in this text that could give you a nightmare. (laughs) 
For me, the most sobering phrase is what Jesus says to the goats on his left. Depart from me, he says. Depart from me. This passage it's often called the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's not really a parable, like technically, but it does share at least one thing in common with many of Jesus's parables, and that is it has as a strong image this sense of separation from God. Separation is likened in our passage to a fire in, well, let's just take a couple other parables. Take the parable of the wedding garment. I think that's in Matthew 22. Anyway, a guy is not wearing the right garment, and he is cast out into outer darkness. In the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, earlier in Matthew 25, the virgins who do not have oil in their lamps see the wrong side of the door. They're separated from God. As dreadful as it is to imagine, Jesus holds out the possibility here of being estranged from him. And we're not told exactly what estrangement from Jesus will entail. I do want to point out an interesting observation. I find it interesting. You can be the judge of whether you find it interesting. But what I find interesting is that the sheep, we're told, are welcomed into a kingdom that has been prepared for them since the creation of the world. The goats are, find themselves in a fire that has not been prepared for them, but has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Do you see the distinction? Kingdom has been prepared for us, fire for the devil and his angels. Now, what, the reason why I bring that up is some biblical scholars will note that discrepancy and will draw tentative conclusions about it as to what, uh, as the fate that awaits those who do not know Jesus, those who are goats. Are they eternally tormented? Do they cease to exist or is the fire here, not necessarily for all people, or is the fire here more of a purifying fire? I, I do not know. I'm not going to delineate it. I don't think Peter would appreciate me talking about the doctrine of hell as he gives a, does a wedding this afternoon. Um, but I do want to say, and I think that is explicitly licensed from this text, is, you know, as a lowest common denominator, when the king returns, it will be a party. And everyone is invited and will go to that party. But not everyone will enjoy that party as much as everyone else. When Jesus returns, everything that is now secret and now hidden will be revealed, will be brought into the light. So there is, in this text, a note of warning. Point two, something about description. And the description is a, a terrible header title. But what I'm really trying to get at here is like this idea of outcomes. Like what lessons can we draw from this passage about what God wants for us and about what God wants from us. And this question is worth asking because there is a way of reading this passage that leads to anxiety and unhelpful fear and self-interested good works. Let me tell you a story. Uh, I have a good friend who is a pastor and um, he, his church provides a meal for anyone in need every Thursday. Every Thursday at noon, they provide a meal. Now, if you've ever tried to organize 
anything, you'll know that volunteer recruitment is very hard. And it's very hard to recruit volunteers to a random Thursday in February, and especially a random Thursday in July. But on the fourth Thursday of November, Thanksgiving, it is very easy to recruit volunteers. Everyone wants to help. Well, a few years ago, it was a couple days before Thanksgiving, and he gets a call at the church. Hello, he says, answers the phone. And uh, someone, it's a woman, she uh, was calling, hey, um, are there any spots left for your Thanksgiving meal? I really want to go help. And he said, well, thank you so much for calling. I so appreciate your desire to help. We're unfortunately filled, but you could call like this church or that mission. Lots of churches in this city provide meals on Thanksgiving. And she said, well, I tried this church and that mission. What am I going to do? And he said, I don't know what to tell you. I can say that the next Thursday, the first Thursday in December, there's lots of slots open. And she said, I'm not kidding. No, it's Thanksgiving. I need to help this week. And he said, well, you've ruined my Thanksgiving. No, he didn't say that, but he just hung up the phone. Now, that story, you know, you might say, well, that's kind of a caricature. And it is in some ways, but it, it, it did really happen. <laughs> it's a true story. And what it demonstrates, I think, is what can happen when we read this passage as being primarily prescriptive. I know, that's like a fancy word. But what it means is, if we read this passage as an instruction manual, here's how to avoid being a goat. Here's how to be a sheep. Here's what you need to do in order to be welcomed by the king into the kingdom. And look, the stakes are very high. Like, if I am not a sheep, I'm going to burn an L forever. What do I do? Well, what I want to do is just take a different approach to this text. And I want to do that for a few reasons. The first is is taken right from the text itself. I don't know if you caught this as David read it, but the sheep are surprised to learn about their manner of life. Did you get that? The sheep had no idea throughout the course of their life the significance of what they were doing. They weren't intentionally doing good. They just, Jesus validated and vindicated the decisions they had made. Well, if that is the case, I, I, it feels against the spirit of what Jesus is saying here as a primary implication of this passage to make sure you're doing good to shore up your own standing before God. It's obviously important to love our neighbor. I'm not questioning that. But I just want to say, I think there's something more here than a terrible warning about what happens when we don't. And we're also told in in the text that the sheep are welcomed into the kingdom not because they have compiled merit, but because, and this is the key, they have lived in a certain kind of relationship to Jesus. Truly, I tell you, he says, whatever you did, For the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. These sheep are praised at the final advent of Christ, Jesus' second coming. Not because their good works outweigh their bad. They are praised for believing and trusting and doing the truth that Jesus 
calls us to be his people in all of life. And in every moment of every day, we live before an audience of one. They are praised because they handled appropriately the innumerable and invincible ways that Jesus is showing up in our lives on a daily basis. They believed and they trusted that they were his and they acted accordingly. The goats did the exact opposite. They did not live in sanctified ignorance and uncalculated obedience. They looked for ways to court the king's favor and they completely missed the boat. And, you know, if you just pause on this particular passage and zoom out for a second and think about what Jesus taught about life in the kingdom of God and the point that I see Jesus making over and over again is that it is not goodness or badness as such that determines your place in the kingdom. What determines your place in the kingdom is how you relate to the king. What determines your place in God's family is how you relate to God's son. The gift of new life, of reconciliation, of embrace and attachment to Christ is just that. It's a gift, a gift that God has given us in Jesus and that we simply trust and believe in to receive and enjoy. Think about, I call your attention to the icon on my left, the the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son did not get up out of the mud and then earn his way back into the father's embrace. He just got out of the mud and somehow found himself being hugged. It was a gift that he merely accepted and trusted. There's a parable of the, uh, the vineyard workers in Matthew 20. There are some people start out at the very beginning of the day. Some people start their workday an hour before the workday ends. They are all paid the same. Why? Because the folks who started late crammed in a full day, is, full, days of, full day of work? No. We don't know why they all paid the same, but they were. They just received the paycheck. And in a similar way, what Jesus is telling us here about The gift of the Christian faith, the gift of belonging to God is that it's just that. It's a gift. It's something to receive by faith. And what I really want to say is I do not think that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is now changing all of the rules and saying, well, if you really want to be mine, you need to make sure to do X, Y, or Z. Okay, so if Jesus, I've made this point, I think, strongly enough. If Jesus is not being prescriptive, if he's not saying, here's what you need to make sure you do, then what is he doing? Well, I want to say he's being descriptive. Jesus is giving us a picture of what happens to people who say yes to him, who receive the gift of embrace, and who relate to him in sanctified ignorance or wholly unknowing and uncalculated obedience. And what I, the, to my mind, the real bombshell here, especially in a congregation like ours, where so many of us are very smart and we earn a living because of what we do with our minds. 
The bombshell is that for Jesus, the theater of the spiritual life is not merely the mind. It's not simply what we think. It takes place in our heart and in our hands and in our feet. The sheep did not know what they were doing. They knew and trusted the shepherd. They followed him without calculation, without seemingly any real intention. They just followed the shepherd. That's what sheep do. They follow the shepherd. And doesn't that sound blissful and sweet? To not be so caught up in our own rat race of significance, but to just follow the shepherd, the promptings of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts? I... I think Jesus wants us to enjoy a measure of freedom in our lives in him. But we, just, we simply trust him and believe in him that his guidance over our lives is good and will lead to a wonderful place. We do have to know, we do have to know one thing, and that is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in the son would not perish like a goat, but live forever as a sheep. And that, that is, that is true. That is as true as two plus two equaling four. And what I want to say is we receive that truth and we live on that truth in the same way that we live on the mathematical truth of two plus two equaling four. We live in it, we respond to it, we act on it by doing arithmetic, by doing the stuff, by acting in trust. We count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And we trust that everything that we do, the good things we do, the bad things we do, the ugly things we do, they are all done in and before the God who makes all things new. Jesus loves us. Jesus is the good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. For those who are lost, he takes them home. He brings back the strayed. He binds up the wounded. He strengthens the weak. And at great cost to himself, he laid down his life. That's what, what good shepherds do. And so the warning that I described earlier, it's important because it's, it's in the Bible, but it's not something for us to fear. We are sheep, and the only thing we can do in response to our good shepherd is to give the world a witness of our trust in him. All you need to do is act as if Jesus truly does call you to be his own in this world. And the rest, it's his business, not ours. Third brief point about the invitation. As we all know, this pandemic is far from over and our olfactory, sensory neurons are going to remain dormant for a little while longer. It's a, it's a number of months before we're going to be smelling each other and all that that entails. <laughs> but just because we can't smell doesn't mean we have to be divided. It doesn't mean that we can't show compassion and empathy and strain to understand how complicated and, and difficult people's lives are right now. 
And Jesus, forgive this little, little corny, but Jesus does not go on lockdown. Jesus still deeply cares about people, and Jesus still deeply cares about people who are hurting, especially in these times. And, and so all I want to say, this is the invitation. When Jesus puts people on your heart, just act on it with uncalculated obedience, without even worrying about intention or significance. Call, text, do yard work, drop off a meal. You know, Martin Luther, I find this phrase so liberating. He says, you know, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbors do. And so when you see a need, just fill it without calculation. We have no idea how dear tiny acts of love are to our glorious Lord. And it, I think, is supposed to be that way. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.